So I think if you were even slightly connected to online social media in the past couple of weeks, you had the Crowder v. Maza um, imbroglio show up in your feed in some way, shape, or form. And for those of you who haven't, uh, don't worry, you didn't miss out on all that much. Uh, The rest of us are oversaturated with it. But let me fill you in. Uh, Crowder, Stephen Crowder is a conservative YouTuber who said nativist and homophobic things about Carlos Maza, which is, I mean, sadly commonplace on social media. Maza then complained to YouTube, which at first didn't do anything when saying that Crowder's words, while hateful, didn't violate the terms of service because hate speech alone, depending on there's lots of qualifiers there, but hate speech isn't necessarily a dequalifier um, for, for YouTube's terms of service. But then the situation went viral. The fact that YouTube wasn't pulling down Crowder's words or, or somehow punishing him for his his comments. So the situation went viral. Folks criticized YouTube's flaccid response. And then YouTube said, oh, well, better do something. So then they demonetized Crowder's channel which then Crowder parlayed into a victimhood narrative that went viral on the right. So it's the kind of situation, you know, no one was very happy with how they handled it because it was, so it was kind of a, a mishandling kind of situation. How did this pop up on, on your feed, Matthew? Oh, yeah, well, you know, I, I do tech policy in the 21st century. And yeah. I know, so I have yeah. a, I have a Twitter account and it's yeah. the kind of thing that was certainly making the rounds because it was prompting the kind of debates that I think we're getting used to in the, the tech space, namely, uh, conversations about how some of the largest, most popular social media companies and, and content platforms handle, uh, content moderation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when people say content moderation, they're talking about processes that, uh, sites such as YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook go through in deciding what to keep up and what to take down. And these are very difficult decisions to make, uh, involve a lot of uh, difficult questions. There are a lot of gray areas. And there's, uh, on top of the the fact that it's it's difficult, uh, there's an added, I, how best to put this, I suppose, a, a, a cultural problem, which is namely that uh, a lot of people feel particularly aggrieved and feel that a, a lot of the uh, the takedowns uh, and demonetizations are politically motivated by the people who work uh, at the headquarters of these companies, which are, of course, based um, out west in California. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think it can be tempting when you look at any given situation to think it's easier than it actually is, right? right? Like, I, I, neither of us are going to be sympathetic with the things that Steven Crowder said, right? They they were hateful things, but determining what's hateful versus what is not, I mean, like determining hate can get really complicated really quickly. Mm-hmm. Determining uh, things like nudity, things like violence, yeah. all these are really complicated decisions. So I, I thought actually before we get to some of those complicating factors, um, we would talk about what that process look likes, uh, looks like. And, and you know, without giving talking about any specifics, you've kept an eye on kind of how some of the corporate content moderation processes have evolved over the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. So why don't you walk us through like what – let's say something pops up, something like the Crowder Maza or, or any kind of a potentially objectionable content. How How does Facebook or YouTube or Twitter – how is that discovered? And then what does that process look like as it makes its way up the chain? 
I think something to point out at the front end is that uh, for for a lot of content, some of this some of this may be automated, depending. So there's there's known uh, offensive content uh, that's automatically flagged by uh, machines. That you know, artificial intelligence can automatically flag a lot of this stuff and and take it down. the The more complicated, I think, question. Uh, although I don't want to pretend that that's easy, but uh, the yeah. the one I think is more uh, more on the more on the minds of people these days is when when the humans get involved. So someone sees content that they find offensive or they think uh, is is hateful, uh, they can flag it. And uh, depending on the company, uh, depending on the company, it will end up in front of a human sooner or later. And these human beings will have to make a decision uh, by consulting the policy that that company has about content and then uh, deciding whether that content is compliant or not. And this is, uh, this is difficult. And one of the things I think that's missing from a lot of the conversation about content moderation is uh, people seem to think this is really easy uh, and that social media sites are making it too complicated. But I... <clears throat> I think it would be good if anyone listening just imagine that you set up a website like Facebook. It's it's a website where you want people to come. It's going to be free. It'll be funded through advertising, uh, but you'll allow people to post photos, uh, commentary, uh, to share links to news to different websites, and you've you've got to decide well what kind of content do we want to to have here? What will we allow and not allow? And you can imagine being at a, a meeting uh, with uh, some of your co-founders and uh, the co-founder who, who might be called Paul will say, well, I think we, we shouldn't allow uh, images of new children on this new website we're building. And of course, everyone at the table says, yes, oh, that yeah, sounds yeah, like yeah, a, this yeah, is a, yeah. that's as good policy. <laughs> good point, Mark. I mean, I mean, Matthew. Thank you. Yes. Uh, so <laughs> we go around the room. We're like, okay, we'll, so we'll write that down in the policy. That's good policy. Yeah. And then. Uh, inevitably, a, a policy that, that sounds good and is good on, on paper uh, runs into problems. Someone who, let's say they're a high school teacher and they want to uh, educate uh, their followers, who might also be public school teachers, say, uh, posts uh, that famous photo from Vietnam about the napalm bombing, which features you know, a, a photo of a, a naked Vietnamese girl uh, running down the road. So based on the policy that we don't allow uh, images of new children, we take that down. Yeah. And some people think, well, look, we really had that policy to stop child pedophiles. pornography, yeah, yeah, pedophiles. Right, yeah. <laughs> but this is historically significant. It's a well-known photo. So maybe we should keep it up. Uh, and then someone else who's doing a thesis, say, on extermination camps posts photos from Auschwitz, which include uh, not only images of new children, but dead people. Mm -hmm. And then we have, okay, well, do we want to allow footage of, of dead people? Well, yeah. no, we, we find that offensive. But then not only do you run into the problem of, well, what about historically significant yeah. photos? But what about fictional portrayals? Yeah. Or what about... Or what if somebody know, shares that photo, but to make a point you don't like, like to, right. to, yeah. to say, mm -hmm. well, Auschwitz was good. Right. It's uh, the same a, photo documenting a historical event. But if you make a carve out for that, how do you... Yeah. And, and you can have... Complexity. You can yeah. have situations uh, where you're not dealing just with... 
the, the kind of stuff we, we've discussed already, but uh, cell phone footage of of events that people film, like these, you know, these horrible videos of of kids bullying each other, or sometimes even beating each other up, and they might film it and put it up on Facebook. And when I was watching a, uh, I believe it was Channel Four undercover documentary where a reporter um, embedded himself in Dublin, where one of the Facebook content moderation uh, centers is, they were told, well. If you put a photo like that up and it's condoning the behavior, the bullying, then we take it down. But if an anti-bullying charity yeah, puts it yeah. up and comments, this is horrific, we need, then, uh, then we'll keep it up and not take it down. Uh, and all of this is very, very difficult. You know, we've, um, I, I believe, I mean, I don't want to say for sure, but I wouldn't be surprised if YouTube had uh, a policy about uh, cruel uh, cruel footage of but i've seen footage on youtube uh of chefs preparing food in some foreign countries that uh, i certainly view as like what they're doing to some is is cruel like you're, you're you're viewing animal suffering yeah uh and i can easily imagine that some people viewing that would find it emotionally disturbing and the only reason i've been going on as long as i have is yeah. to yeah. to just emphasize the point that uh, these are these are very difficult questions. There are a lot of gray areas, uh, and when dis- when thinking about these kind of problems, we we shouldn't let the the perfect be the enemy of the good, right? Mm-hmm. That these mm-hmm. companies will inevitably fail. Uh, but the the question is, but what's the alternative? And, and to your point, it's complicated. I mean, it would be complicated for any individual individual one of us examining our own set of norms, mores, virtues, ethics to decide some of these questions on our own, let alone trying to come up with a standard that covers billions of people across the globe. Well, right. Like one yeah. size fits all standard that covers mm-hmm. everyone. I mean, I, I was thinking um, as you were going on, as you were talking about, um, uh, and actually there was a, a line from, we'll, we'll put a link to the article in the show notes, but there was a line from an early, from an examination of uh, Facebook's content moderation policies that in the early days, when things were simpler, when it was like a college based social media system only, they had a, uh, a slogan printed out on a piece of paper in their office that was, here's our standard Hitler is bad and so is not wearing pants. <laughs> so, yeah. So uh, no Nazis, no pro Nazi stuff, and, you know, no pantsless. So, uh, uh, clever, but, yes. uh, the, but the, you yeah. have the inevitable question of, well, uh, if if you are someone who posts a, a video of a Hitler speech, <laughs> is it pro-Nazi or is it historically interesting? Right. Uh, if someone um, has a grandparent who served in the U.S. military and might have come home with some Nazi memorabilia that they mm-hmm. keep in the house, mm-hmm. is a photo of that pro-Nazi, you're going to run into these yeah. problems. And that's um, that's led some people, I think, uh, th- this this kind of problem plus the allegations of politically motivated bias has motivated some people to say, look, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, YouTube, all, all these, they should just adopt the First Amendment as their standard. Uh, and I can understand why some people instinctively think this is good. Uh, the United States has the best free speech protections in the world. Uh, the amount of speech that is allowed is is um, vast. But you're going to quickly run into problems because keep in mind that Facebook and Twitter are profit-seeking companies. And there's First Amendment protected speech that they clearly do not want on their platform. Right. That I don't like, want on my platform. Well, I would, Right. <laughs> and so people don't uh, – most people do not want to see – footage of animals being crushed to death or beheading videos or 
videos and footage of, of horrible things. Uh, it's First Amendment protected. You can, uh, but it it seems. Um, reasonable to me that the people out uh, in these companies have made the decision that no, we shouldn't have the First Amendment as our standard because our sources of income may dry, might dry up uh, to a significant degree, and that's understandable. And this actually comes up in conversations uh, right now about like Section 230, uh, Josh Hawley's proposal to uh, combat what he sees as conservative bias by uh, requiring them to apply to the FTC for right. licensing uh, or, or uh, I register, I forget what the term, certification, certification, certification that they, they have been trying to avoid political bias and like very quickly well-intentioned efforts. Like if you say um, – we're going to the, the state is going to guarantee that private outlets, private platforms like Facebook and the like are going to avoid content that that we generally find disagreeable, whether it's you know child porn or whatever you list or hate speech or et cetera. Whatever the intent, very quickly that can become uh, it can have a real chilling effect on kinds of speech that folks find that. That is fine, that we would probably recognize as fine, but that becomes questionable, that, that represents a risk. So if you force if you force platforms to remain content neutral, you can have one of two effects, right? Either they can become more hands-off, which turns platforms like Facebook and Twitter into something more like 4chan or 8chan or even, you know, the, the battle days of Reddit, where they say, look – if we're going to be liable for the potential that one of our users is a crypto Nazi and posts something praising Hitler and we're going to be sued, for, we, we face the potential of liability for that. Mm-hmm. Well, we're just not going to – we're not going to do any content moderation whatsoever. And I don't think that's the world most of us want because I don't – those of our listeners who have been to 4chan or 8chan, I'm not sure we want all of our social media to look like that. I'm, I'm fine with them existing. I think they should have the right to exist. But – that's not what most of us want from our social media. Um, but in the other flip is that they become even like they start moderating out stuff that we weren't trying to get rid of satire, historical video that so you can either encourage their content moderation to be non-existent or to be really stringent. It's it's if you want well calibrated, reasonable policy, you know, uh, content moderation rules from these companies using the state applying a first amendment kind of justification or whatever it may be is it's a really it's a blunt instrument let me put it that way well right and this is uh the the bill we're mentioning um introduced by uh senator holly i think is uh you know problematic for a whole a whole host of reasons but one of the interesting things is it's really making social media speech politically controlled the mm-hmm. subject to mm-hmm. uh the ftc uh, which is one of these alphabet soup agencies, yeah. and uh, will end up like you mentioned. Uh, if if you're a, a lawyer at Facebook, and uh, imagine a world where this bill is implemented into law, and you're, you're at Facebook, you think, well, okay, so we need to get certified by the FTC, and to do that, we have to have a good faith effort to be politically neutral. So, well, what does that mean? Uh, and it could mean, and I think it probably does, if you're doing a fair reading, it means that the KKK get a Facebook page. Uh, and so does the Nazi Party of America, and they get to post what previously would have violated Facebook's yeah. hate speech, <laughs> yeah, right, <laughs> hate right. speech policy, 
And I can see why some people feel that this kind of approach is is the way to go, especially given the media environment where people are being told that there is um, a, a crackdown um, from these companies on certain speech. But one, I, I do think that fear is uh, based on uh, on no no evidence. Yeah. And and secondly, I don't think people appreciate how it would it would ruin the internet that most of us have grown up with. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, I, I think people should proceed with caution when it comes to those kind of proposals. There's a flip side from that, the moral, moral of the story from the era of broadcast regulation in the in the fairness doctrine is actually f- that applied to television radio broadcasting is fairly similar to what Holly's proposing. Uh, some of the mechanisms are a little different, but it's close. And w- what happened there, you have the potential, you can see it either going towards, well, we need to let everyone have a voice or else we face lawsuits from the American Nazi party, et cetera. So you actually have more hate speech when the point of this policy was to, dis- you know, uh, in part to discourage hate speech, or it can go flip in the other direction. This is what happened in the sixties, which is that a lot of uh, radio stations and television broadcasters, they stopped airing anything, any kind of political content that was vaguely controversial, anything but the most anodyne, most mainstream kind of political positions that's okay. We everyone a, a, a critical mass of people agree that those aren't offensive, even if they disagree with it. But anything radical, anything conservative, anything too left wing, new left, new right, none of that. You can be kind of very have a narrow range of political opinions in the air. Anything else is is unsafe. You might as well just leave it off. So that chilling effect is a real risk too, and it could flip either way. And it's it's hard to say on this side. But those right. rules are not going to produce the outcomes that are intended. Mm-hmm. And actually, something that might produce the results that uh, the aggrieved people here uh, are, are reaching for is uh, to be found in, in competition and the market. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think that a lot of people these days view uh, Facebook, Twitter, Google, YouTube, all these companies as as monopolies. And I suppose we could dedicate a whole episode as to why I don't think that's true. But uh, yeah. our colleague Ryan Bourne just put out a good paper at Cato, um, mm-hmm. which we can put in the show notes. Uh, highlighting uh, how many times in the past that we have assumed that big tech companies are monopolies and they just turn out not to. And what you've seen are the emergence of uh, social media sites where they're trying to use free speech as their lodestar. Uh, So Gab, which began, I think, mostly as a place for white supremacists to hang out. Uh, But you have uh, the Canadian psychologist Jordan Peterson apparently trying to build build a a site where they'll only take content down if ordered to by a U.S. court. And my response to this as a a liberal is – Good. Let's let's see what works out in the market. You're you're competing for users, and uh, you're let's see what happens. Uh, my my guess, uh, and I could be wrong. I've been wrong about a lot of things in the past predictions. Uh, but uh, my guess is that actually most people who seek out social media services aren't there um, because they like the fact that people they don't know can say what they want. They're there because they want to share um, photos of their children's birthdays, to find out what their family and friends are up to, to share interesting political news, uh, to figure out where – find information about restaurants and and whatnot. I don't think there's uh, enough people out there who – want to go to a site uh, because its comparative advantage is uh, some sort of First Amendment standard. I just Now, maybe maybe there's enough people out there that um, they will go and it will it will frighten some of these uh, so-called tech giants out in, uh, on the West Coast, but I'm skeptical. Yeah. 
there's and I, I think this is a reminder of natural market forces are pushing against the kind of corporate dominance that you have from some of the largest uh, social media platforms. So Facebook is the 600 pound gorilla when it comes to what you're describing, posting pictures of your kids and making connections with family. Twitter plays a similar role for conversation among, I don't know, the kind of uh, liberal elite and the chattering classes, chattering (laughs) classes, people like us, the literati. Um, And uh, so they're very dominant in those spaces, even though there, there are alternatives. But there's a natural market mechanism which is pushing against that, which is that different communities of people are going to, they're not going to, there is no one size fits all content moderation system that's going to make everyone happy. And because of that, it makes sense, like in a natural market state, for there to be regional versions doing what Facebook does, but more closely um, uh, tweaked, you know, more, uh, in align with the interests of the local, of the region, of people in the area. So just to give one illustration, um, you know, again, remember Hitler is bad and so is not wearing pants. And that sounds, that makes sense when you just hear it. It's commonsensical to us here in the in the States. But take nudity as an example. Facebook standard is to obscure female nipples except for breastfeeding and artistic nudes. And that kind of makes sense to us. Okay, I get like a sculpture of, of Diana uh, shouldn't be, you know, pulled off of Facebook. And I get someone, a mother just breastfeeding her kid shouldn't be. But that makes sense to us in the country that's that standard would not be the same in a more conservative religious country with taboos on public breastfeeding. They wouldn't be so blase about it. They're not going to be happy with Facebook's decision. There's room there for a local competitor who their standard is going to be different. They might not allow that that depiction of, mm-hmm. of breastfeeding or even like how do you decide what counts as artistic nudes? Like, you know, what about Muslim countries with a tradition of representational art in general being taboo, let alone uh, artistic nudes? I mean, the the cultural gap, we're talking about policies spanning the whole globe of of people from a range of faiths and traditions and politics. And it's it's essentially an impossible task that they're being given. And whether you think of how they're doing with that task – I don't know how sustainable that is in the long run. I think the natural push is going to be for Facebook knockoffs or clones or regional versions that are going to be successful at competing on the mores of of particular countries or, or areas. Mm, mm. That's, yeah, that's right. my prediction. Well, yeah, I think there's a lot to that. And it's very difficult, of course, to understand satire versus serious commentary Mm. if you're not actually fluent in the culture of the person doing the posting and oftentimes comedy especially relies on a lot of uh, assumed cultural knowledge within the audience Mm -hmm. Uh, and there's just so much content to to consider that it's it's inevitable that there will be failures that there'll be misunderstandings and and stuff will be taken down when it shouldn't Uh, and even even in situations where you might take uh, an aggrieved party at at their word, going back to what you started with, you know, Crowder, uh, the Crowder incident's rather interesting because at least Mazza in his uh, Twitter thread with complaining about, he wasn't complaining just about Crowder's content. He was also complaining about some of the harassment he would get from uh, people who he suspected were Crowder devotees. And that, that's, you know, for, for argument's sake, let's give Crowder the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. So I mean, is it not fair for him to then say, 
look, I can't decide who visits my YouTube page and I can't <laughs> fig- just tell them I can't I have no control over who they text or tweet, you know, why why am I being punished for this? Yeah. Uh and and I think of course that wasn't the only thing Mars was complaining about and Crowder's uh behavior was hardly laudable, but uh, that that's a that's a difficult issue. Yeah. Uh where your your content is being uh, demonetized or taken down because of what your audience is doing instead of you. We generally, in a, in a pre-digital sense, we have a pretty strict regimen when it comes to incitement. Like there, you can incite someone. You can be held criminally or civilly liable for inciting someone to violence. So, like if I hire you to go put out a hit on someone. Like I'm liable. I I mean I paid you to do it. That's not even just incitement. Or if I am like I'm a political candidate in a speech, I say, "Hey, after this rally, you should go out and rough up someone from the other side." And I actually in the 2016 campaign, there were a couple times where Trump came close but stopped just shy. But you can be held liable for inciting someone to violence if you explicitly encourage them to to do that. That's not what typically goes on in, in a lot of these online cases. I mean, it can, but most of the well, time right, it's yeah. unpleasant people attract other unpleasant people and then they'll criticize someone and their unpleasant followers will jump on, but there's not actual legal incitement happening. Well, exactly. It's a, if, if I, if I tweeted, you know, God, I hate Paul. He is, <laughs> he's a menace. Uh, it's, you know, that, that might be the end of it for me, but what if one of my, my fans decided to dox you to, to figure out where you and your yeah. wife live and to post that information publicly? Uh, now you're into like pretty scary, uh, area, right? Yeah. yeah. Uh, but my content didn't dox you. Yeah. You know, someone saw maybe I inspired them and this gets to your point of what's the point at which there's, civil and criminal incitement. Now, that's an interesting question, but if you're Facebook or Twitter, you don't care what the law says. You're just trying to worry about, is this like content we want to allow? Uh, is right. that it, We right. don't care about legal this or that. We don't need to get the lawyers involved. We need to figure out, is this like a good user experience for yeah, people yeah. who are on the platform? It wasn't for platform. me, what you call it. <laughs> <Right. laughs> yeah. I hate Paul. So right. uh, and that's... That's something, uh, like I said earlier, that uh, I wish more people would would consider is not that Twitter and Facebook are not interested in, in a legal standard because they are not a government. Uh, they are a profit-seeking company with different incentives. So even if we can figure out what counts as hateful and what doesn't, this can get really messy because, um, I mean, you can imagine, let's say uh, if uh, if the FTC had the powers that Josh Hawley wanted to give them over deciding what counts as politically neutral or what counts as biased, well, some of that bias and even hate speech can be in the eye of the beholder, right? Like what one person finds just beyond the pale and we don't have to go full Nazi here. We don't have to violate, you know, go Godwin's law. But even in lesser cases, is it was it fair? Was it politically neutral for Facebook to allow uh, an altered video of Nancy Pelosi looking drunk or ill on their platform? Well, it's satire. It, it's kind of. I mean, it's. But do you if you pull it, you're saying we don't want to allow these kind of 
parodic or satirical crit- critiques of one political party. But how about if it was the same video of Donald Trump? I mean, like, you, it gets really messy really quickly. What what different folks will see as as irredeemably biased or offensive? You don't have to go to the full extreme, right? Of course, uh, something that's been been fascinating and beguiling to to observe and. In the last couple of years in this debate is who who views what kind of periphery as within their tribe mm. and it's been sort of strange mm. that you have people who uh, i don't think it's a particularly controversial thing to say but i'll say it anyway like people like alex jones who are sort of just beyond the pale of just rationality and <laughs> yeah. um and all, i just think it's yeah this is crazy stuff and it's Funny that a lot of the conversation about what what some of these platforms have done to Alex Jones' accounts, uh, it tends to be people sort of right of center mm-hmm. who are uh, complaining about this. And it's sort of odd to think that they don't view themselves as Alex Jones, but they certainly view on, on the slippery slope, they think they're closer to the summit than uh, than the Communist Party or, or to socialists. And that's this is that's been a very interesting thing to observe. But I want to stress uh, that... This, I think a, a big part of the conversation we're having now, and the only reason we might be having this conversation today, is that there's a perception about what's going on in these companies that I think is compounded by um, ideological filters, mm-hmm. that uh, people are only hearing um, grievances from people within their broad ideological tribe. Uh, and actually, if you look at – there are people on the left – uh, who have complained about similar things in the past. Uh, when I was doing an event with uh, our colleague John Samples. On the Hill, I, I mentioned a letter that a socialist organization had written to Google saying Google is an anti-left uh, company that is trying to stifle leftist speech. And this is this is an outrage. And, and conv- there's been a lot of criticism about how social media companies deal with uh, transgender people, people who are changing their gender. And uh, anyone engaged in this debate, I think, has to take seriously the complaints from across the political spectrum. Yeah. There's no- more cultural mores in in the the kind of the mean or median of a cultural more is constantly shifting right like if you go back 10 years ago the question of whether or not someone criticizing like the, the definition of homophobia in online discourse has shifted over the last 10 years mm-hmm. and I, I would say for the better personally right but right. but in general like there were things that would have been said 10 years ago that probably most Americans would not have thought of as homophobic, but that today would be. The problem is, is that if you set up government arbiters, in Holly's case, the FTC, they're the ones who get to decide whether or not this is hateful, whether it's politically biased, etc. You're giving someone an awful lot of power over over something that's inherently unstable and changing. I do think that reasonable people can disagree about things like homophobia or uh, or racism uh, so is the statement uh, I I'm not um, I'm not against homosexuals I think that fine people but I'm against gay marriage but is that is that homophobic uh, is saying to be clear this isn't like, your statement this, this is not my yeah, statement right. no I, mean, I look right, right. I, yeah I mean, as, uh, but on, on social issues I'm as liberal as they come right yeah, and yeah. Uh, so this isn't my position but imagine someone saying something like that yeah. or someone someone uh, saying something like uh, you know I support gay marriage but homosexuality just kind of weirds me out mm-hmm. like it gro- mm-hmm. it's gross 
Is, is that, that homophobic? It's a very is that hate speech to the point that it should be removed, or is it just unlikable speech, hate speech that shouldn't be removed? That's just we yeah. right. And, and look, uh, whenever I think about these kind of questions, I think, well, I, I thank God I have the job I do because yeah. I would not. It's <laughs> yeah. of these yeah. uh, anyone who's pretending that these kind of things, uh, these kind of decisions are easy, I think is just kidding themselves. Maybe, maybe the the framing device for our listeners is imagine all the terrible things that your crazy uncle or aunt says at the Thanksgiving dinner table um do you think they shouldn't have the right the very the fundamental right to say those things and and that's the kind of question we're having like you you might not like what they're saying but should they have the right to speak those things online or not i mean mm-hmm. and who gets to decide that should it be up to private companies in which case their you know, competitors can arise that would allow them to say it you know should the government get to have a say and whether or not they get to say that it gets really messy really quickly. So I think that kind of puts a, puts a personal point on it. Um, there are lots of people you're going to come in contact with who you disagree and disagree with in very vehement ways. Um, but we live in a rights-based society that's pluralist and people are going to disagree and disagree substantively. And while there ha- there's limits on what, I mean, there's limits on each of us has to decide what those limits are for ourselves. I mean, there's lots of people who I wouldn't befriend in real life because their views are hateful. But do we want to live in a society where the government makes that choice or where the government forces platforms to make a, make a choice for us? And that's, that gets messy really quickly. I think it's important to bear in mind that they are trying really hard right now. So some of the numbers I pulled, um, Facebook claims its algorithm detects and removes close to 100% of spam, 99.5% of terrorism-related content, 98.5% of fake accounts, 96% of nudity, and 86% of graphic violence. That's just the algorithm. That's no human moderator just pulls it. And that's pretty good. But then again, we're talking about billions of posts per day from more you know more than a billion users worldwide on something like Facebook and hundreds of millions for something like Twitter um, so even 0.5% of a billion means 500,000 missed posts so that means there's some poor schlub somewhere that has to wade through those 500,000 um you know, terrorism-related posts and decide whether this is a criticism of terrorism, a defense of terrorism, a historical document about terrorism. And they have these complicated flow charts they have to go through. Um, I was actually impressed going through what they do. I, again, I don't think it's going to work in the long run, but it's not for want of trying. Oh, goodness, no. I, I was watching yesterday a, a documentary that um, The Verge put together uh, where they interviewed uh, humans involved in the in content moderation. And I mean, the amount of mental trauma these people are going through for $15 mm-hmm. an hour, I just think is really, really rough. Uh, they uh, have night terrors. They have trouble you know, functioning day to day. And you would too. If you're watching hundreds of videos a day of, of animals being beaten to death or children being strangled, uh, torture, war crimes, I mean, the most horrific stuff you can imagine. And just watching it day after day, hundreds and hundreds, it would stay with you. Um, but a content moderation policy requires uh, humans at some level uh, to do a lot of this. And it's it's reassuring, of course, that uh, algorithms seem to be doing a good job at, at the heavy lifting, but uh, I think we shouldn't forget that uh, there's a 
degree of you know mental strain involved with uh, a lot of the humans involved with this and it is new i mean when you think of your own experience um and I, i'm sure it gets worse as you become more famous i mean if you have lots of followers on twitter you have a blue check mark you attract trolls mm-hmm. uh to an extent that the the more middling the small fry like us matthew don't don't get quite to the mm-hmm. same extent um so this isn't to discount the the trauma even that comes from a twitter outrage mob or a troll a troll fest on your account that can be really horrible uh you know, and this both left and right, whether it's Carlos Maza or David French describing the, just the yeah. vitriol and hate and death threats they receive from online uh, online Twitter trolls. Not to discount any of that, but I think on a day-to-day basis, except for typically public figures, um, most people – like it's not like lots of beheading videos show up in my Facebook feed or lots of horrible images of child pornography show up in my Twitter feed. Uh, or or Holocaust denial stuff. Now, again, if you're famous, you might get more of that, pictures of ovens and things, right? Um, but, like, it works pretty well for most users. Uh, and, and the cases where it doesn't work so well, it's usually your, you know, crazy great aunt reshares some terrible post, uh, you know, glorifying a political figure in, like, simplistic terms. You're like, oh, goodness, Aunt Gertrude, not again. Like, that's the 50th one of those. You should be able to see through this by now. The actual, like for most users on a daily experience, the algorithms, the content moderation works plausibly well. So there's a bit of a, it feels like in a real world setting, there's a bit of a moral panic right now about, oh no, Facebook's going to destroy American democracy. Oh no, Twitter is going to, the, the, the you understand what I'm saying with where I'm going with that? It's it feels disproportionate to the actual lived experience of most users. It is important to remember, uh, it's a cliche, but it's true, you know, Twitter's not real life. And yeah. and everyone who's worried about what, what's going on tends to uh, be on these platforms. And I, I, of course, have a bias given my professional interests here, but I, I'm pretty sure uh, my track history of predictions notwithstanding, I'm pretty sure that uh, a long-term consequence of the Trump administration, however long it lasts, will be some kind of tech regulation or tech law because these uh, these big Silicon Valley companies are under bipartisan attack at the moment. You know, we, we've been talking today about uh, the content moderation debate, so that's only a, a part of it. There's yeah, also yeah. concerns about antitrust uh, and, of course, concerns about these platforms not doing enough to tackle foreign meddling, mm-hmm. especially during election time, concerns about bots and so on. Uh, I think this is uh, one ingredient in a a pretty uh, disgusting pie uh, that's that's uh, forming a lot of the debates today. And they didn't do themselves any favor. I mean, they, uh, a lot of the social media companies did fall. I mean, they they were caught up short a few years ago with some of their slow response to uh, to to controversies. Their even their content moderation process. I mean, they've been reaching out to tech people over the last year or so, trying to say, "Hey, look, here's how we." Here's how here's what this process looks like. Why don't you sit in? Why don't you try doing some of this yourself and see yeah. how complicated it is? They weren't doing that a few years ago. So it has they they did fall on their faces to some extent and they've responded by trying to be more transparent, more open and uh, uh more rigorous in their content moderation policies. If I can pull one historical example, um this idea of private organiz- institutions, private organizations Kind of having a, a court-like system, a, a, a way of deciding, of being an arbiter over what 
what is acceptable and what isn't. It might feel a bit alien into in 21st century America. We're used to a formal government-run judicial court system. But there is actually significant historical precedent for this kind of semi uh, this this semi-private but private institutionally run court alternative adjudication system. And the the clearest example is the is ecclesiastical courts. So even in US history uh, up until the mid 19th century, the overwhelming majority of stuff that we recognize that today you would take to a court system, whether it's uh, custody disputes, inheritance disputes, uh, just tort lawsuits. You know, this person, well, today it would be you, you, you had a car crash. Back then, your your cow wandered in someone's other's pasture or broke their fence. Just basic civil liability stuff. The overwhelming majority of those decisions were handled by church courts. And uh, so, you know, you're in a place like Massachusetts. You're both member, you know, by law, you're part of a congregationalist church or you're contributing to a congregationalist church system. And so you would go, the church would literally convene a court of, of clergy and parishioners and they would hear between these two parishioners, okay, tell us your side, tell us your side. Here's the ruling. You could appeal it up to a higher kind of court, ecclesiastical court system. I mean, it was this whole formal adjudication process that was done by private institutions. Uh, we have something like that today with Sharia law courts, which despite what right-wing people think aren't super scary, you know. I think it, even today in, in, there are some parts of the United States where there are uh, Jewish uh, courts that adjudicate similar kind of disputes. Yeah. Uh, and that's one of the more fascinating things about, uh, I think, long term about about the current debate we're having about social media is what kind of private government uh, or private governance yeah. uh, institutions yeah. emerge. Uh, and, and it might may well end up looking something like that. And uh, the advantages that they have is that it encourages people, people have buy into them. I mean, part of the problem of like, uh, of taking everything to like a federal court system can be that folks um, – it's it's fine as long as people buy the authority of the system and the authority of the court. Um, and the advantage of keeping that court system small, local, decentralized is that participants are more likely to have buy-in. Um, they're more likely to trust. They might not be happy with the decision, but they're more likely to abide and trust in the authority of the court. So that's the advantage of and, – and that's the kind of difficult territory someone like Facebook's going to have. They don't have the advantage of being we are the state. The reason why you should trust the ruling of this of this process is because the state says it so. That comes with a certain amount of authority in most citizens' minds, maybe less so in our minds as libertarians. But it comes with authority for most folks. Facebook doesn't have that, but they're also this you know multinational – mega mega corporation and so it's not at all local or decentralized and in fact they're trying to create one size fits all rules that they've only recently been transparent about so they don't have that decentralized local the advantages of that private kind of system i just described with ecclesiastical courts or with jewish courts or sharia courts and so they're this they're neither fish nor fowl and i think that they're in an awkward position so while i fully appreciate the difficulty of what they're doing and um I wouldn't fault them for a lack of trying. I just don't know how sustainable it is in the in the long run. I guess time will tell. Time will tell. And time will tell that we are done with today's episode. Thank you for listening. And until next week, be well. Thanks for listening. Building Tomorrow is produced by Tess Terrible. 
you enjoy Building Tomorrow, please subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, find us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.